Hello, and welcome to Previously Unknown, a podcast from independent 20th century that reframes and reevaluates what we think we know about contemporary art. We are pleased to welcome four very special guests to talk about the life and work of Marie Lanceron, the most recognized female artist of the post-war period who's being reassessed today. Moderated by journalist Julia Halperin, we are joined by Cindy Kang and Simonetta Franquelli, curator of the Barnes Foundation and consulting curator for the Barnes. We are also joined by artist Maureen Doherty. This was a fascinating discussion on Lanceron's world in the avant-garde of Paris, where she was central to Picasso's circle and began showing her work. The artist will be the subject of two forthcoming shows this year in New York at Independent 20th Century, presented by Neymar Contemporary, and she will be the subject of a wide-spanning survey in October at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. Well, thanks to all of you for joining us to talk about Marie Lorenzen. Uh, to start, uh, let's have you all introduce yourselves and tell us where you are calling from today. Uh, Cindy, let's start with you. Uh, I'm Cindy Kang. I'm a curator at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, though today I'm calling from just outside of Rochester, New York. Hello, I'm Simonetta Fraquelli. I am a consultant curator for the Barnes and an independent curator. And I'm calling in from Milan, Italy. Maureen Doherty, painter, show at Chime Read now, and um, proud card-carrying member of the Barnes Foundation. And I am sitting next to Maureen at a studio in New York. My name is Julia Halperin, and I am a journalist and our host and interviewer today. So we're here to discuss the very action-packed life and legacy of the artist, Marie Lorenzen. But I want to start with how some of you first encountered her work and what you were initially taught about her. So Cindy, let's start with you. When did you first see a painting by Marie Lorenzen? I must have first seen a Lorenzen painting when I was a teenager and visiting Paris at the Orangerie. But the first time I really had any kind of conscious encounter with her um, was when I was an intern at the Baltimore Museum of Art. I was a rising senior in undergrad, and they have a group portrait by her that I had to write a little blurb about for the education department, you know, where I was interning. Um, and that was kind of my first real encounter with this figure who kind of was vaguely on the edge of my consciousness, but then became someone that I had to look into and someone I had to consider and, and you know, a female artist that I hadn't really spent much time thinking about. And so having had the task of writing about her from an educator perspective, you're very well equipped to, to take on this task, which is... Um, to describe her reputation at the time in one sentence. The way I knew of her at that time was essentially a fringe female artist of Cubist circles. And Maureen, you had also a, a formative early encounter with Lauren Sun's work. Can you tell us about that? And my two uh, spinster aunts had an image hanging over their fireplace. And I used to stay there when visiting my grandparents because they all lived in an enclave in Westchester together, that side of the family. But I have a question 
The painting you're referring to, is that the Apollinaire portrait? Absolutely. That Gertrude Stein had purchased? Yes, exactly that one. I mean, they they love that painting over there. It's um, a very important part of their collection. Right. So let's go back now 140 years to the beginning of Laurenson's story. She was born in 1883 as the illegitimate daughter of a small-time French bureaucrat. So how did she find her way into the beating heart of Paris's avant-garde art scene? Simonetta, this one is for you. <laughs> well, um, she she's the daughter, not only of this um, government official bureaucrat, but she's also the daughter of a legitimate um, domestic worker. And it's her mother, really, who brings her up. And it's her mother, I think, that also is quite... Um, important in her early life in as much as she she wants her to be educated she goes to a school for middle class children even though she's an illegitimate child she she manages to get a reasonably good education probably paid for by her father she has ambitions to be an artist her mother wanted her to be a school teacher but she starts she she starts having anatomy drawing classes and she also goes to a school to study how to paint porcelain and so really she she starts off interestingly, with a connection to the decorative arts, which is something we'll talk about later on, I'm sure. But she she gradually makes her way. She does apply to the École des Beaux-Arts, but doesn't get in, and eventually goes to uh, an independent academy called the Académie Humbert in 1904. And this is an academy which allows women to study in the afternoon. So she, she manages to get a place there. And while she's there, she meets George Brugg, who uh, is an aspiring young artist, and through him meets a whole group of other young avant-garde painters. Um, she becomes friendly with Francis Picabia, who, again, we'll talk about a bit later. And through them, eventually meets Picasso and also Guillaume Apollinaire, the poet uh, and critic who was to become her lover by 1907. And so she gradually is infiltrated into this um, avant-garde circle uh, in Paris, uh, mostly male artists, but she forges a relationship with all of them in, in a kind of different ways. And it it's through them that she's initially propelled into showing uh, exhibitions and the salons and also participating in this kind of gang around Picasso, famously known as the Bande Picasso. So in the early, uh, the first decade of the 20th century, she's she's part of that, that circle in Paris. And Cindy, can you tell us about what kind of art she's making at this time? Yeah, in the early part of her career, she was really focused on self-portraits. I mean, of course, that is a very convenient thing. You don't have to find another model. You can just portray yourself. Um, and I would say in this kind of 1904 to 08 period, she's uh, drawing and painting um, first in a very rather realist style. And then she really encounters... Henri Rousseau's work. And so there is this moment in about 1908 or so where she is very influenced by Rousseau um, and is painting in this kind of stylized, naive way uh, that, that Rousseau painted with very flattened forms and bright colors and clear contours. But after a few years after she's been part of this Banda Picasso that Simonetta was talking about, you know, around 1912 or so, she starts to adapt cubism to her end. So she starts to play with the angular geometric forms of cubism and 
sees how they can help her create a new vision for um, what would become her signature subject, which is these paintings of women in settings like gardens or in interiors. And she's also doing portraits of women at this time. And she's using the cubist palette of, you know, these monochrome grays and also that green that uh, Brock really liked. I mean, she admired Brock immensely. And so there's this period in before the war where she's adapting cubist elements, but to her own world and her own vision of women, exclusively women, almost exclusively women in Arcadian settings. How did she get the materials she was working with at the time? Um, I'm very familiar with the palette. The green is Viridian, and the gray she makes is Viridian and crimson and white. Her palette's very limited specifically because of that. But where? how would she have afforded the materials at this time? Do you know? Well, I imagine like many other artists of the period, she would be buying from local suppliers. Um, she would have had a little bit of money from her, probably from her mother. And she probably wasn't using the most expensive materials. I mean, we haven't, to be honest, done a study of her kind of pa- her phys- physical object, like the, the, stra- the stretchers and strainers and pigments that she's using in this particular exhibition. But uh, I would imagine that she's going to the various suppliers that other young artists are going to at the time. And maybe, um, I don't know if Cindy has any other information about that from works at the Barnes that have been studied, but I don't think that we have any specifics and knowledge as to where she was actually getting her materials from. Do, do you know of any, Cindy? No, we didn't do a study on where exactly she was buying her materials, but we do know in the early part of her career, she's de- she's painting more on panel than she does later on. Um, and she does write or say in an interview or write in her memoirs that her mother wanted her to paint on both sides of these wooden <laughs> panels that were basically the tops of boxes or whatever they were, you know, household kind of objects in order to save money. So we know that in that very early part of her career, that was part of her practice. So she had limited means. In the beginning, yes. But she does sign a contract with Paul Rosenberg in 1913. And we do know that Paul Rosenberg then at a certain point, especially in the 1920s, and he actually is sending stuff down when she's in Spain too, that he is, you know, helping her obtain materials. Mm-hmm. But this, this practice of, pra- of painting on both sides of, of canvases or of panels was actually quite common of artists at the time to save money. So that in the early years would have been a typical practice of other, of other artists as well. But as Cindy says, yeah, from 1913, she's she's probably getting you know some sort of money from from uh, Rosenberg. But like I know Renoir studied; um, he painted ceramics too. I don't know if it was Limoges or whatever. That wasn't unusual for artists to do. Did she ever have that career where she made an income painting ceramics? No, no, that was just part of her early training, and then she quickly moved on from that. Okay. Cindy, you mentioned Spain. So after Lawrence and Apollinaire break up, she gets engaged to a German baron and they go into exile in Spain during World War One. And it seems like with some distance from the sort of insular Parisian cubist art world, she's able to make a bit of a breakthrough in her own work. So how does her work change during that time? Simonetta? 
Yeah, so she, in 1914, she marries uh, this Otto von Wachten, uh, who's a German German painter, kind of minor painter. She becomes a German citizen through her marriage, and therefore when, when the war breaks out, uh, they're kind of forced into exile. He doesn't want to go to the front and fight, and they decide that they would go to Spain, and they go first to Madrid. And, yes, she's cut off from the Parisian art world. She suffers from you know, this, this distance from her friends and from the world that she knew up till then. But she starts to explore other forms of art. She goes to the Prado. She sees uh, classical French, um, Spanish painting, you know, Velasquez. She's quite taken by early Goya. Um, so she starts to explore other ways of uh, other forms of art, uh, she becomes friendly with people in Spain, uh, the local kind of aristocrats, um, mainly women. She also embarks on a career, on a sorry, on an affair with um, Nicole Gru, who was a friend of hers from Paris, who comes to visit. Who was the wife of André Croul, um, a designer. She herself was the sister of Paul Poiré and um, a designer herself, and she embarks on this. Uh, affair with uh, the young Nicole. And you see in her paintings a kind of shift towards a slightly more intimate um, visage, uh, these these double portraits of the two of them. Uh, It's also what seems to change is her palette from these monochrome greys that uh, Cindy was mentioning in the greens. It shifts more to a kind of a pink and a blue. Um, This signature palette that you'll see uh, from the 20s onwards, so these kind of diaphanously painted women, she also, while she's in Spain, reconnects with uh, Picabia, Francis Picabia, who we mentioned early, who, earlier, who's in Barcelona by 1916-17. And there she, she befriends his wife as well, uh, Gabrielle Buffet, and she's involved tangentially with a Dada magazine that he produces called 391. And even though her art is not at all Dada at this point, I think that she does, through Picabia, learn a kind of form of self-promotion and a, a way of kind of thinking about herself slightly differently, uh, slightly separate from that world that she frequented before the war. And she starts forging her own path. She's also writing a lot of poetry at this period, and there's a connection between her poetry and her visual imagery. And I think you, you have the sense that she's becoming her herself, her 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 let's say, more mature art herself and where she wants to go. And I, and she learns through that experience of being far away from Paris, which she very much, uh, you know, it does. she does suffer while she's in Spain. She's, she feels cut off. And it's only, I think, with her return to Paris that you really get this sense that things are beginning to kind of come together for her. And certainly with her show in 1921 uh, at the Rosenberg Gallery, uh, you really feel that her career begins to take off seriously. Did she leave her mother behind in Paris when she leaves with the Baron? Her mother had died. Her mother dies in 1913. Because I know she lived with her mother most of her life. Right. And I think the the combination of her mother dying, of this relationship with Apollinaire falling apart in 1912, there's a a reconciliation kind of thing in 1913, but basically it's over. And so these two factors kind of in a way free her to move on. um, And that's when she in a way, slightly in a rebound situation, marries the German painter. No, she was almost married to her mother most of her life. <laughs> it would seem like it. <laughs> yeah. And what interests you about that, Maureen? Um, because I've read um, a wonderful uh, piece in our forum, and the writer um, speaks of her 
duality um, where she and adopts. I mean, she's basically completing herself with the other figure in the uh, double portraits. All the auto portraits are sim- simply herself. And when she adds the second person, it's almost like she's searching for her wholeness in maybe lack of, really, you know, her mother's death or whatever. But there's like a continuation of a whole that she's always been singular as a, an illegitimate person, you know, in society. So it's a searching for a, a complete individual. I thought that was very astute. Um, it gives these vessels kind of a um, these forms that she makes of the figure this reason for existing together. So you mentioned that you know she ends her marriage and she returns to Paris in 1921 and has this sort of triumphant return with a major solo show. And at this point, she really is a bona fide star. Cindy, can you describe for us a little bit? you know, what her career was like at that time and what made that show such uh, an occasion? Sure, yes. When Paul Rosenberg mounts a solo show of her work in 1921 as very much a triumphant re-entry into Paris, that is the moment that launches her career again. I mean, she had some success before the war in Paris. She was definitely an emerging artist, but with that 1921 show, she comes into her own and she's really recognized as a major figure on the Parisian art scene again. And from that 1921 show, she gets, you know, fame and she gets many other commissions. She starts to do commissions of portraits of fashionable society ladies, um, which, you know, is a very lucrative sort of thing to do. Um, so she's painting Chanel, she's painting um, Lady Cunard, who was the mother of Nancy Cunard. Um, she's painting all sorts of, you know, uh, women, the, the wife of Paul Guillaume, um, the wife of André Salmon, uh, these women who are also her, some of whom were her friends, her patrons, her associates, her collaborators. So she's really with her portraits, I think, in the 1920s, creating a kind of community of women around her. Um, the other thing that starts to uh, happen in the 1920s is that she gets commissions to design for the Ballet Russe. Um, in 1924, she premieres a production with the Ballet Russe called Les Biches, which it's hard to really say enough how much this production defined a certain sector and a certain idea and a certain subculture of 1920s Paris. It was a ballet that was completely inspired by Laurencin's aesthetic. Um, it was very subtly queer. It was incredibly um, feminine and atmospheric. Um, it was very uh, much based on this world that she had created, this aesthetic world that she created in her paintings. And the composer is? Poulenc. Poulenc. Hmm. So it was a, it was a collaboration. Serge Diaghilev commissioned Marie-Laurence to design the stage set, the costumes, the curtain for this Ballet Les Biches, which was composed by Poulenc, and the choreography was done by uh, Nijinska. So it was really a star-studded cast. 
Um, and there were many really interesting features and aspects of this ballet that I think very much draw from Laurent Saint's aesthetic. One was the fact that the title was Les Biches. Les Biches, uh, in French has many meanings. Um, it means the does, as in deer. Uh, it means, uh, it, it was a slang, it was a slang term for, uh, kept young women. It was also a slang term for lesbian. So these three, um, intertwined meanings were at the foundation of this ballet. Sim, would you like to add? I mean, I think that what, I mean, certainly something we've tried to do in our exhibition, uh, Cindy and I, is that, is to show, I mean, Laurent Saint's paintings are quite easily recognizable once you've seen, well, certainly of her 20s and 30s paintings, once you've seen them. And um, I think you can, you you know, you, you kind of recognize them as a signature style. But I think one of the things that's interesting is this foray that she has into these other, into these decorative arts, whether it be um, the ballet, whether it be, you know, interior design, you know, she does, she, she collaborates on the famous Maison Cubiste uh, prior to the war um, in the Salon. And I think that that is quite an interesting aspect of the way she promotes herself, uh, certainly also in the 20s. This, she uses all these other media. She recognizes that painting is not enough and that all these other media are ways of promoting her art. And that's not exclusive to her. I mean, Sonia Delaunay does it well. I mean, there are other artists who use these other forms. But I think that she, she becomes adept at, at actually exploiting all these other ways of infiltrating kind of the world of art uh, through different media. And I think that's hopefully one of the aspects that will come across in our show, that you will see these different um, these different forms and you'll see just the variety of ways in which she worked, especially in the 20s, which I think was the kind of moment in which she really, her, her art really exploded onto the scene in, in a big way and made her very successful. I mean, you have to remember she was the most successful female artist of the period. I mean, I think right up until the Second World War. So, I mean, she, she was making a lot of money. She was doing really well for herself. And that multimedia element of her practice, I'm curious, was that sort of easier for her to do because she was a woman or more difficult for her to do because she was a woman? Huh, good question. You could argue that she was she was more inventive because she had to be. She, she recognized that just painting wasn't going to be enough. And I think other women... Just did the same. I mean, they they recognize that these other forms. I mean, Sonia Dolne, especially with her design of her fabrics, for example, recognized that that was an, you know she was countering her husband's success in painting, and she was she was an equally good painter. But she found this other way of becoming successful through her through her sales of her of her designs of her fabrics. And um, I think Laurent Saint, in many ways, was the same. She she I think they, women had to be more inventive perhaps because they had to find other ways of, of, of showing their art and you know whether it's through book design or other you know book illustration that kind of thing there was other way there were other ways there were other vehicles which could be exploited and and they were clever at doing so um and I, that was a, uh, again cindy i don't know if you think can add anything more to that but that that uh, that is my experience of these female artists of the period yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a commercial factor to it that, you know, Lauren said had to support herself. So she was looking for many different projects and ways of mm. making money. I mean, she also enjoyed nice things and she wanted to support a certain uh, standard of living. So, you know, there was a commercial aspect to it, but it also is, it, it, 
it is a part of, you know, she had this early training in porcelain painting. She also was an amateur, you know, hat designer and did that also as a young woman. So there were all these other ways of expressing herself that she was already used to doing. And I think she continues that throughout her career. So the title of the exhibition, which I don't think we've mentioned yet, that you're organizing at the Barnes is called Marie Laurenson Sapphic Paris. And so at the same time that she's attracting all this attention from the male-dominated art world, she's also taking on an important role in Paris's queer artistic community. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that scene was like and what role she played in it? Simonetta, yeah, let's start with you. Yeah, um, yeah. this is the title. Which, I mean, I think that looking, you know, not looking back, I mean, it's a known fact that you know, Paris in the 1920s was a much more liberal, much more open society where um, – lesbian or bisexual women or men could, you know, could, could live very happily and, you know, very openly. And it was a very free society in that sense. And she was able to um, express herself, her real self uh, at that moment without, without any constraints. And she, she was friendly with many other um, intellectuals, writers, uh, socialites who had very similar similar feelings, similar ways of living. I mean, as Cindy has alluded to, some of them she painted as well. I mean, she she was very much the, the, port, the, the portraitist that they would go to if they wanted to have their portrait. Many of them went to Marie Laurencin. And so she was part of this artistic ferment and this, this moment in Paris, which I think, you know, looking back seems, seems un, unusual. I think a younger audience doesn't realize, I mean, doesn't realize just how how free it was at the time. I mean, one tends to think, you know, 100 years ago, it must have been all, you know, much more um, uh, much more difficult to express yourself. But in Paris of the 1920s, in fact, to be modern, in a way, to be to be bisexual, to be lesbian was actually very much to be modern. So it was seen, it was, it was a, something that was much more easy to express. And I have, we had the sense, well, certainly on the way we, we presented the exhibition, that she tapped into this world in a way that was um, very beneficial also for, for herself and for her, in a way that she could express herself that she may not have been able to prior to the First World War, for example. And I, I feel that it's, it's a particular moment which has a resonance also for today and the way she saw the world and the way she portrayed this very female or women-inhabited world. I mean, remember, she painted very, very few portraits of men. There's a, there are a few. In fact, we've actually got one in the exhibition of, of Paul Rosenberg. But for the most part, it's a, it's a world inhabited by women. And it's a world that I think that looking back today would be you know, quite uh, easy for younger people to recognize and to, and to connect with in a way that perhaps one you know, doesn't normally think of the 1920s. It's a different way of seeing the world. She created a, a new, another alternative way. I'm not saying the only way of seeing the 1920s in a modernist way, but an alternative way and a way that resonates very much, I think, today. But don't you have to bear in mind that men were marching off to war? She's sandwiched between two major European arenas of war, and women were left alone. Um, and men were dying. And so it's very natural for women to become spinsters. Like uh, so many people I know have spinster aunts, great aunts, <laughs> because of these wars. And it's not that there weren't men for them to marry. It's just, well, there weren't because they were off to war. And it's very, it was very um, 
comforting for women to be together and have one another. That's definitely true. And certainly in the First World War, the role of women changes immensely. Totally. What happened in France in the First World War, I mean, that most of the, most of the men have gone to the front and the women, the, their whole role in society changed the way they the way they could work, the way they had to work, the way they presented themselves. I mean, it changed completely. Then there's obviously the period between the wars, which is slightly different. And then there's the Second World War, which is another whole story. But she, in the 20s, she's tapping into this world, this free world that exists in Paris, this kind of freedom that exists in Paris for women, which probably did come on the back of the First World War because that opened the door. Yeah, well, the avant-garde, the term, is a form of the front line of mm-hmm. the men in World War I. Mm-hmm. They died. That was the avant-garde. That was their purpose. <laughs> well, they're the frontline men, the yeah, frontline yeah, soldiers. French term, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I find most interesting about Lawrenson's work is that the same painting might be read very differently by the conventional male art buying audience and by the queer community in Paris. Cindy, can you tell us about one work that lends itself to this sort of double meaning and double reading? Sure. I think one good example of that is a painting called Women in the Forest. It was bought by John Quinn, who was an American lawyer, a major modern art collector. And he very famously said, um, you know, about the time, you know, around the time that he bought this painting, he said, one of the things that I like about Mary Lonson is that she paints like a woman. Whereas most women artists seem to want to paint like men and they only succeed in painting like hell. So that gives you a good sense of the way he's viewing the work, that it is stereotypically feminine in a way that is pleasing to, um, you know, a male buying audience. It really represents, uh, a, you know, a very beautiful kind of a safe feminine female world in, in his mind. Um, but, you know, if you look at the work, it's very subtle, but it is, um, it's a work that depicts four women in a forest and they're intertwined with and surrounded by animals. Um, and they're, you know, in pink flowing dresses and, or ribbons and there's a pink curtain. I mean, it is very stereotypically feminine in that way. But if you actually think about the history of this kind of painting, that this work, this genre of painting is actually uh, stems to the 18th century. It is of the genre of painting known as the Fête Galante that was very much tied to the work of um, Watteau, um, Rococo painting in the 18th century. And that Fête Galante genre of painting um, was very much focused on aristocratic men and women flirting in gardens or having otherwise, you know, romantic intrigue in these garden settings. So what Laurence has done actually is update and reinterpret the Fête Galante genre to be completely devoid of men and to only be populated by women and animals who are flirting, you know, in, in a garden setting. So there's a very subtly, um, kind of queer erotic dynamic going on here that you know, it's not overtly in your face. It's not so obvious, but I think in her world that she existed in both, you know, in, in the sapphic world that she also existed in alongside, as we were talking about this kind of male dominated avant-garde world, those different meanings 
could have been read. Um, to, to just follow up on that um, discussion we were having, the one figure that I would like to mention here is Natalie Clifford Barney, mm-hmm. who was an expatriate mm-hmm. American writer who was a lesbian, uh, who lived in Paris and had a very famous salon that she, you know, organized weekly, um, from before the war, from before world war one, you know, through the, through the twenties, actually, I, I personally actually don't know when, when those salons ended, but Lawson was a f- member of this group of women that they, that frequented these salons and Lawson and, and Barney, even though she never painted Barney, um, they were good friends. They were close friends um, for their entire lives, uh, even up to the end when Laurencin was illustrating a book of uh, poems by Sappho, which a new translation into French of poems by Sappho. Um, we have in the archives correspondence between her and Barney discussing this project, and Laurencin is keeping her abreast of you know the progress. So this was the other world that she was also playing to. Wouldn't Barney have left because of the war, the German occupation? I think she was whisked out of of France back to America. Yeah. Sim, do you know where Barney was during the war? She did certainly come back to France. If she was gone, she was back in Paris after the war. Yeah. As an American, I think she aborted the country. But in the late 1939. Yeah, before World War II. Yeah. She closed the salon. And, oh, and that's what, I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah, she had to leave. Mm-hmm. Simonetta, can you tell us a bit about how Laurentin's life ended up? Uh, I was pleased to learn that she was able to do what I think we would all love to do at some point in our lives and careers, which is take all of our earnings and buy a chateau. <laughs> so tell us, yeah, how does her story end? Well, she becomes, you know, by the 1930s, she's she's doing extremely well. She's, she's very successful. And as you say, she's able to buy herself this this castle, she, I'd say in terms of her art, she becomes, there's such a demand for her art, she becomes a little bit formulaic, I would say, towards the ni- late 1930s. There's, there's this kind of churning out, one gets the sense of, the, of this, these images, but nevertheless, she, she is very successful. She um, ends up, I mean, she does stay in Paris most of, well, in and out of Paris during the war. She manages during the war to publish also her memoirs, which is called Le Carnet de Nuit in 1942, which is, given the situation, would have been quite difficult to do. So um, she was obviously in a privileged position uh, in Paris during the war. She ends up by living with her assistant, a woman called Suzanne Moreau, who actually becomes her lover. And in the end, she adopts her so that she can become her heir. Um, post-war, she's recognized by the French government, but she never really regains the success that she had uh, prior to the war. And uh, she dies uh, in the mid-1950s, 1956, I believe, um, relatively young, I think 72 or something. Um, she, I would say that by the end, even though she has become very successful, um, Artistically, she, she's not recognizing the world has moved on, artistically speaking, in the post-Second uh, World War. And her art, it, it becomes kind of a bit sidelined. Um, she loses favor. And she's not really recognized again for several deca- decades. Um, and perhaps with the, with the interest that there has been in women's art in, in, you know, in recent times, one has been able to look at her with fresh eyes and, and see what she did contribute 
to this very particular moment, um, certainly between the two world wars and also before, you know, the First World War, you know, the role she played and how that's changed, how, as we, you know, we started off by talking about how we first encountered Marie Lancin, how she was portrayed in the early, in the more historical um, accounts of 20th century art. And, you know, she tended to be seen as Apollinaire's muse, a kind of secondary figure in the kind of Cubist world. And from the perspective of 2023, I think we can look at her very differently and see how she did contribute to a different form of modernism, how she did create a whole world, uh, a female world, which is not, you know, not being looked at closely enough, and which is kind of very important for how we see ourselves today as well. So I, I think that even though her career did end on a slight low, it's kind of coming up again now in terms of the interest that there is in her particular way of painting and expressing herself. And Marina, as an artist, I'm curious what your thoughts and feelings are about this world that she created. I'm mystified by it, actually. And I'm very curious as to the interest of Japan, who sort of scarfed up uh, lots of her paintings. Can you talk about that, the um, collectors in Japan, their attraction to her work? Well, there is mainly one collector who has, as you said, scarfed up all of her paintings. <laughs> so he really uh, is driving that. Well, actually, he's, you know, now it's his son who has taken over. Um, but they opened the Musée Marie Laurencin, which uh, is in Tokyo now. Um, and they own an enormous amount of her work, you know, 800, 900 pieces, uh, most of which are, you know, works on paper, but yeah, you know, I forget how many paintings now, Sim, 100, 200? It's about 100 paintings, well, yeah. hundred paintings, yeah, but major, so, major pieces. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, m a lot of the major pieces are in Tokyo. Um, so they have been incredibly supportive and generous um, collaborators and lenders for this exhibition. Um, but yeah, you know, in terms of the Japanese collectors, it is that one family that has, has driven the market there. Um, and of course they have created this, this taste in Japan for that work. So, you know, the Japanese museums are also collecting her work. Um, but you know, it's in terms of the history of Laurencin and Japan, you know, during her lifetime, she was more well-known in the U S than in Japan. She did exhibit in Tokyo in 1914, but otherwise, um, it, it was really the American collectors and exhibitions in the U.S. that started before the, the whole like Japanese craze for her work. But she was friends with um, Fujita, uh, the Japanese expatriate artist uh, in Paris. And so, you know, he would have brought knowledge of her work back to Japan. She was also friends with a Japanese poet um, named uh, Horiguchi. She met him in Spain and he translated some of her poetry into Japanese and published it in Japan. So she had these, she had a very international set of friends who would have kind of laid the groundwork for an interest in her work in other countries. I think the Japan um, element is absolutely fascinating. And in terms of this one family, like, it, was it a case of this one guy coming across her work and just becoming obsessed with it and consumed by it more or less yes and, and yeah. buying up when, when many other people were not buying 
um, because her market was relatively low. And so we started buying, well, much earlier, before anybody else was really being very super interested in it. And apart from obviously the collectors who had bought historically, but in the more recent decades, uh, he, he was buying more than anyone else, absolutely. It was very much his personal taste that drove it. Was he an industrialist? Where, like, how did he put a museum together? I mean, where are his funds from? Uh, he uh, started a, a, a taxi company, um, and oh, he. Wow. They are not open to the public, um, so it is not like a museum that you can visit. But it's they do lend very generously. Um, they love to have their paintings on view at other institutions. And you, I'm sure you can make an appointment to see works if you're in Tokyo, if you, if you ask and they are available, they're always traveling though. So yeah, they let, they lend an enormous amount. You know, if there's a Laurence exhibition, you'll find that they, they're always lending, which is wonderful that they share. So how many are there in the Laurangerie in their collection? Uh, there's, I believe five works in the, the, that came from Paul Guillaume's collection and they are all coming to our show. Wow. And there's six. Is that right? Yeah. There's one that we left them one. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind. Wow. There's only six in the lingerie collection. Yeah. And there's a hundred. Over a hundred paintings in his Tokyo. Tokyo. Wow. <laughs> That's unbelievable. One of the things about Lawrence on that I continue to be really interested in is the sort of inherent contradiction that she was highly successful in a male-dominated art market for making these very feminine-looking paintings of women and girls. And she was playing into many of the stereotypes that feminist artists of the future would later push against. But at the same time, it seems like the way that we see it can and has changed with the times. Uh, so I was interested to read Judy Chicago writing about Lawrence Sun's work in 1979. And she said... Behind the artifice and perfumed sweetness of the women in Laurenson's paintings, there is an aura of sadness that speaks to containment and stifled rage. And I'm curious about how all three of you have come to think about the way that Laurenson's work approaches femininity, looking back at it today. And Cindy, maybe we'll start with you and go around. Sure. I think that what has been the most revealing and perspective shifting for me is to understand Laurencin's excessive femininity in her work as a form of queer feminine performance, that this is not about necessarily playing into stereotypes of femininity to please men. I mean, I think that's, that's what has been off-putting to some feminist scholars, you know, a few decades ago, but that it is actually um, coming out of a completely different context, the, the sapphic Paris that we were talking about, that as Sim said, she was creating this alternate vision of modernism. Um, and if we can really shift our perspective and understand her work in that context, I think it it just opens your mind to a completely different way of looking at the power of femininity and what it means. One of the things I, I have, I encountered her in a very different way to, to, well, I encountered her through art history, obviously, as an art history student. Uh, uh, and I also encountered her through looking at her work at auction houses when I 
worked at Christie's as a very young person prior to becoming a curator. Um, but one of the things that I've been really interested in is in her self-portraiture and how that developed through her career. And rather than being seen as a kind of um, kind of vain way of, you know, re- I mean, obviously, as Cindy said, having, to, you know, painting herself was easier because, you know, she was the model and she didn't have to look for other models and therefore she could be painting herself. But it was is this kind of form of self-exploration that happens through her portraiture that you see from, you'll see from in the exhibition from really early on where there's this kind of very almost impressionistic like images of herself all the way through and how, how that that way of exploring herself uh, through her self-portraiture is something that, I mean, I'm thinking of something like Cindy Sherman or, you know, female artists today who do a similar thing of, exploring through through their their imagery of themselves in different guises um of course her guise tends to become you know very similar and there's a repetition but but i think i found it really interesting to look at it through her through the lens of her self-portraiture not seeing that as a negative aspect but actually a very positive aspect um as a female artist uh and how that resonates again with with artists today female artists doing similar things Speaking of female artists today, yes, we have one right here. Well, um, my impression is they're all self-portraits. And um, I am so in awe of the fact that she invented this iconography, committed to it, and sold it and made a life, a full <laughs> life out of it. And um, that's some um, industrialist or taxi company fell in love with it and bought it all up and um, that it's here today is so staggeringly beautiful and um, giving her life is, um, I think it's honorable and I think um, the Barnes is on the right path. I think it's a, a good thing that we all can prosper from looking at. I think it will be really interesting to see how audiences, especially of different ages, respond to the work and the iconography. Um, Before we got on the recording, Maureen was mentioning that it is also the summer of Barbie Mm -hmm. uh, and that that is another sort of performative, uh, explicit femininity that's playing with these tropes and um, and also sort of capitalist enterprise at the same time. Um, both of which seem relevant in a way to Marie Laurenson's story. Um, and so I wonder if, yeah, if today's audiences, perhaps more than 30 or 40 years ago, are open to that more nuanced view of femininity and the complex ways that it fuses with capitalism and performance and and identity um so you'll you'll have to keep us posted on the reception at the barns um but you know is there anything else that that you wanted to discuss about the show or that you think is important for listeners to know i have a question how long ago did you decide to put the show on and how long has it taken to put it together uh, about two years yeah two years, years. Two years, two years. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you, there are some works that, you know, the Dr. Barnes did buy. Um, we had three works in the collection. So, uh, 
And this exhibition also comes uh, following other exhibitions of female artists that the Barnes has organized. Um, it is Suzanne Balladon's show, Bert Morisot's show. I mean, there have been other shows, uh, Marie Couture's show that, uh, in fact, Cindy herself did. So that there's this, there, the Barnes is, is, is revisiting many of these artists who um, I think have had not enough uh, exposure in the last uh, few years. And... Um, so yes, it's been it's been about two years that we we kind of came up with this idea, and together Cindy and I have enjoyed a great deal exploring her work. Yes, yes, I certainly have, Cindy. I hope you have too. Yeah, no, it's been fascinating. It's been absolutely fascinating to to get to to have this opportunity to really dig into her work and to really dig into her life because she is so much more interesting than I had thought than when I had first encountered her as an undergrad student. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We are so grateful for your expertise and your insight. I can't wait to see the show, and I can't wait to see the work that's in The Independent. I don't have to wait till October 22nd. <laughs> yeah, do you know what's in The Independent? No, no, I don't. We don't. I don't. I mean, I don't. Do you, Cindy? I haven't had it been told what's in no, the No, not specifically, but, you know, I... I we we do know what Neymar some of the works that they did yeah. have. So, yes, 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 so I can guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can guess from the works I saw there a while ago, but I don't know yeah. specifically which pieces they've included. Yeah, I think it will get New York audiences excited and and hopefully as fascinated with Marie Laurenson as we are. And then they'll have to make the trip to Philadelphia. Exactly, yes. come to Philadelphia too, not just New York. Yeah. Oh no, that's the thing. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta hook them here, and then you get them on the train, and they'll come in droves. The train is so simple, and then you walk across the railroad track, and you're like at the Philadelphia, and then you mosey on down to the barns. Yeah, it's perfect. And the fall is the the weather will is much nicer in the fall than in the summer, so it's a good time to come. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll see you there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Previously Unknown, a podcast produced by Independent New York. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to support the show, you can visit our website, independenthq.com, or find us on Instagram at independenthq. 